Boy, it is time to dive back into a series of sermons that we've kind of been in and out of a couple of different times over the past few weeks. I started this series I'm calling Plagiarizing Jesus because I'm really just reading directly from Scripture, from this portion of Scripture we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the most complete sermon of Jesus's that is recorded in Scripture, Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because Matthew recalls that Jesus sat down on the mountainside as he addressed the crowds. I began several weeks ago talking about how this sermon is really Jesus's early in his ministry, his treatise on what it means when he says kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And at the very beginning, he's talking about how the kingdom of heaven is good news for suffering people. A couple of weeks ago, we we looked at the next few verses, expanded on that to discuss how citizens of the kingdom of heaven become influencers in this world. Now, as a Jewish man, Jesus was claiming to speak on behalf of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. But he was doing so in a way that was very, very unlike other Jews of his day and of previous generations. For generations, the Jews had based their faith on a very, very close adherence to the law of God. They placed special emphasis on the scriptures from our Old Testament. The scriptures that talk about how God's protection over his people, how his blessing over his people relates to their obedience to his law. But now Jesus is talking about God in ways that uh, most people had never heard before. And so these questions are coming up. Is he changing what we thought we always knew? And what about the law? Is the law still in place or is the law no longer relevant? These questions would have been on the minds, not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well that were listening to Jesus that day. And so we want to hear what Jesus' words were. He's going to address the elephant in the room. He's going to talk about exactly what's on their mind. And we, we want to hear what Jesus' words are. Perhaps you have some of the same questions in your own mind. Perhaps you've read your Bible and you've gotten into the Old Testament. And you've read those, those old and obscure passages about thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do this. And you've wondered, why is this in the Bible? Do we really have to do this? Is this part of what God wants for us? Maybe you have some of the same questions that the people sitting on that mountainside would have had that morning. And so I imagine, or I'd I'd invite you to imagine yourself in their situation and just hear this morning the words that Jesus spoke as I I plagiarize Jesus. These words are not going to appear on the screen. I just want you to hear them today. I just want you to hear what he said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not even the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. 
God, we ask that as we hear your word today, that it would find good soil in our hearts. I'm going to endeavor to add my own words to what has already been said, but it's my prayer today that when the dust settles from this worship service, what remains in our hearts is the word of the Lord, not the words of the pastor, not the words of of somebody else sitting next to us, but the word of the Lord. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great rites of passage for any parents is the season of potty training. I remember potty training in my own life. We have many, many brand new babies in the HRCC family this year, which means there are going to be many families going through potty training, maybe for the first time, maybe yet again in the coming years. There's a special blessing for the Christophersons in the back row right there. I can see the uh -uh, uh uh-uhs coming back at me right now. Potty training, potty training. It's an exciting time, isn't it? My memory of potty training for my kids is that it begins, kind of phase one of potty training is what I call the propaganda phase, right? You need to talk about it. You need to drum up some excitement. You need, hey, we are gonna start using the potty. Using the potty is the greatest thing in the world. There's no more baby diapers in this house. We're gonna start putting our tinkles and our poops in the potty. It's gonna be great. You're gonna be such a big boy. You're gonna be such a big girl. We go through, we go through the propaganda phase of potty training. And then at some point, at some point, the child reaches that, that first moment of success. Maybe a few false starts precede it, but at some point, there's that first moment where for the first time they successfully use the potty on their own. And parents, you know what we celebrate. Woo-hoo! We take pictures with our phones. You know, we get the candy out, we do the rewards, it's great, it's great. We, we celebrate that very, very first success in body training. But I think that that is the watershed moment because things can go one of two ways from that point. Either that is the first step in a new life of hygiene, or the child decides, yeah, I don't wanna do that anymore. And you go one step forward and three steps back. I was, <laughs> a friend of ours was telling us about when she was potty training her first, how they finally had that, that very first successful moment, that very first day where we did it, we did it, we used the potty. And then the next morning, her daughter woke up and went right for the diaper, got that pull up on. Mom said, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? We, you know, we, we celebrated, we had the candy, we cheered, we did that. And she said, I did that yesterday. Like, that was just a thing, we're done with that now. I'm gonna go back to the way I always did it before. Like, we did that yesterday, come on, let's keep moving here, mom, get with the program. A natural part of growing up is encountering new things. And sometimes the challenge in those moments is to try and understand whether the new thing is meant to replace the old thing or whether the new thing is maybe just another option to hold alongside the old thing. Or maybe there's a third way of thinking about it. Maybe the new thing is just a deeper understanding 
of the old thing. That seems to be what the people were trying to figure out about Jesus's message. He's talking in ways that we haven't heard before. It's a new thing that we're hearing. Is this to replace the old thing? Is this just a different option from the old thing? Or is this a deeper understanding of the old thing? So with that in mind, let me repeat to you the very first thing we heard Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, do not think, it's like he's reading their minds, isn't it? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's using a phrase that would have been very common in his day to refer to what you and I would call the Old Testament. He's saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill the Old Testament. He's saying that his message about the kingdom of God doesn't replace what we've already read in the Old Testament. His message is the fulfillment of what we already read in the Old Testament. In other words, he's affirming to us that the Old Testament points us to God. That's what the Old Testament does. The Old Testament points us to God. And what that means is as I read the Old Testament, I I have a deeper understanding of who God is. I have a deeper understanding of God's nature and God's character. So for example, I read the story of Abraham and I learn that God is faithful and that he always keeps his promises. I read the story of Joshua and I learn that God is a warrior who fights to save his people. I read the story of David and I learn that God is a king who rules over all creation. I read the story of Amos And I learned that God has a shepherd heart and he despises injustice. But you know what? It's not just the stories of the Old Testament that reveal God's nature and God's character. It's not just in these epic vacation Bible school stories that we we learn about God. Can I say this today? It's in the boring parts too. It's in the boring parts, too, that we discover the nature and the character of God. The passage just said parts of the Bible are boring. Hey, I've been on vacation for a week, so I'm a little off my game. I'm just going to be real with you today. There are parts of the Old Testament that are boring. How many of us have started off and, and, and decided we're going we're gonna to read the Bible? I'm going to read that thing from, from cover to cover. And then we died somewhere in the middle of Leviticus. (laughs) It's like, oh boy, what happened? Bodies are strewn everywhere. It's like, that is not going to happen. That is not going to happen. Because we read these things oftentimes in the Old Testament. We read these lengthy, lengthy passages that seem to have no relevance to what's going on. They don't tell us exciting stories about giants being slain by little boys. They don't tell us things that we need to know about Jesus. We don't really understand... How many of us have read the Bible at one point or another and gone, why on earth am I reading this? Why is this in there at all? Dear Lord, what's the point? Let's just acknowledge that that's a very, very common shared experience. But if that's been your experience, I would invite you to go back to those places, those places of scripture and reread them with this question in your mind. God, what are you teaching me about your character? How does this boring passage point me towards you? And so we go back, for instance, to the Levitical law, and we learn that God is precise. 
and that God is entirely holy and that there is nothing unclean or impure in him. We make it through Leviticus and we get to the book of Numbers where we read all of that census data. There were this many men in the tribe of Naphtali and this many families lived west of such and such a river. And you think, my goodness, this reads like census data from 1920. Do you know why the book of Numbers reads like census data? It's because the book of Numbers is census data. That's why. And none of us go to the Bible and go, or go to the library and go, you know, I'd really like to check out a good census book. That's what I'd like to read this summer. No, no, no. But we read that in the book and then we go, why is that? And then we begin to discover in the census data in the book of Numbers, we learn that God is not merely concerned with nations. But God has intimate knowledge of each and every individual under his care. We get through numbers and we keep reading and then we get to the history books and at least there's some decent stories there, right? But then they start building the temple. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's about this many pounds of wood from this kingdom and it's overlaid with this much bronze, but we had to use gold there and it was these gemstones and this and it was so many cubits until this. And you're reading it and you're going, oh my goodness, this is like a shopping cart from Amazon from some construction company. You know, and it's like I'm reading a description of blueprints and CAD drawings here. And you know why? Because that's exactly what you're reading. You're reading the shopping list and the blueprints for the construction of the temple. And why on earth would God put that in scripture? Why does he want Andy Novak to know how many pounds of bronze overlay were on the temple? Sorry, Andy. Because in the blueprints for the temple, we learn that God's mission involves drawing people into his presence. Every part of scripture is revealing to us the character of God. The Old Testament points us to God from beginning to end. The Old Testament is doing this for us. And then Jesus appears on the scene as God incarnate. He was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed us toward. A few years ago, uh, there was a, a member of the church at the time that, that gave me some advice, can we say? He said, Dan, you're a pretty good preacher. I'm like, well, gee, thanks. But uh, why do you talk so much about the Old Testament? I've been keeping track this year, he says, and you've preached about the Old Testament almost half the time. And his, his, uh, his point was, that's way too much. So being gifted as I am with the spirit of sarcasm, I said to him, wow, half the time, thank you for bringing this to my attention. The Old Testament is actually three quarters of scripture. I'm way under the bar. Thank you for letting me know. I'm going to ratchet it up a little bit because the Old Testament is 75% of God's inspired word. And if we ignore the Old Testament, we're ignoring 75% of what God said to us. We're ignoring 75% of what we know to be true about God. Jesus did not appear on the scene so that we could ignore the Old Testament. He came so that we could more fully understand it. He came so that we would more fully understand what God was saying to us throughout the entirety of his revealed word. So what implication does that have on the way that we live? Are we just supposed to read it? Is that what we're supposed to do? Just read it 
keep it filed for data purposes. We know it. Is, is the Old Testament just merely a reference point for learning about God? Or, and this is really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it, folks? Are we actually supposed to be doing that stuff? That's what everybody wants to know. In 2007, a journalist by the name of A.J. Jacobs, who was a self-proclaimed agnostic, published a book called The Year of Living Biblically. It was his memoir through an entire year where for 365 days he attempted to live in such a way that he took every commandment from the entire Bible literally. And so he didn't shave his beard and he dressed in biblical garb and he did all sorts of things. He, he, he tried to take every commandment literally. He even threw a rock at somebody when he found out they were an adulterer. He, he did and he, and he published this memoir and it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek look at, I suppose, what he would say is, is the irrelevance of, of the Bible. But his conclusions were pretty fascinating. One of his primary conclusions was that actually following everything the Bible tells us to do is impossible. And the thing is, I think most people here, if you gave us truth serum, would nod our heads and kind of agree with that. It, it's not possible really to do everything that the Bible says. So surely we weren't meant to continue obsessing over all of those rules. But listen to what Jesus says. Verse 18, he says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And I didn't put it on the screen, but the very next verse, he goes on to say, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom. Jesus seems to be saying that the Old Testament, and especially the portions of it that we would call the law, that these things have to remain in place and that we have to obey them. But here's the thing. In Jesus' own life and ministry, he transformed the way many of these commandments had traditionally been observed. He and his followers were accused on more than one occasion of ignoring fasting rules from the Old Testament, of allowing themselves to be ceremonially unclean, of, of doing too much work on the Sabbath and all sorts of other things that you could use the Old Testament to say, you guys are doing the wrong thing. We know that that's the way he lives. So what is he really doing and saying here? You know what I think? It's almost, it's almost as if Jesus is potty training the people of God. It's almost as if he's taking them towards Something that they'd always done, but saying, now let me show you what we've been working toward all this time. Here is the best way of doing what you've always done. Here's how everything you've learned towards this point is headed. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. Isn't that just a fancy way of saying that Jesus was, in fact, changing the law? That Jesus was, in fact, contradicting what the Old Testament had been saying? And to that protest, I say, no, that's, that's not what's going on here at all. As a matter of fact, I want you to imagine yourself walking down the sidewalk. You're taking a walk, you're headed down the sidewalk, and you get to a corner of a busy street. And there's traffic going across the, the roads. And you look across the way, and you see a signpost. And on that signpost is a flashing light that says, don't walk. Or if you want to imagine this in biblical context, it says, thou shalt not walk. 
Wouldn't that be cool if that's what the sign said? It's flashing and it says, don't walk. And so you get to the corner and being an obedient person, you stop and you look. And after a moment or so, you observe that that sign is wise in what it has instructed you to do. Because there's traffic going through the intersection in each and every way. And those cars are big and they're heavy and they're moving much faster than you can. And so don't walk is a good and appropriate and helpful rule. And you rejoice in your ability to obey that rule because it says, don't walk. And in the umbrella of the safety of the commandment, God shall not walk, you live and you prosper on that street corner, thanks be unto God. And as you stand there for a moment, you look up again, and all of a sudden, that signpost is now flashing a different message. It's saying, walk. And not only is it saying walk, it's actually giving you a picture that you can see as if you didn't know what that word meant of a person walking across the street. It's not just saying here's what to do, it's showing you how to do it and what do you do in that moment. I suggest to you that there are plenty of religious people in the world that stand on that corner and scream at the signpost, you hypocrites! You just told me thou shalt not walk, and now you're changing your story. Awfully convenient. There's no way I'm going to trust you. You contradict yourself. This is proof that you are false. And that anyone who believes in you is a fool for having believed in you. That's what you say to that signpost, because it has told you thou shalt not walk, and now it dares tell you thou shalt walk. I've had a week off. <laughs> I would suggest to you that that's exactly the way a lot of people treat the Bible. Hypocrite! They say, you contradict yourself. This is proof that you are meaningless and worthless and without value in anyone who believes in you is a chump. Without recognizing, back at the street corner, that the circumstances have changed. That the traffic that was once going unabated through the intersection is now stopped. And this is the moment where it's safe for you to walk. Circumstances have changed, but the intent and the purpose of that signpost has not changed. It was there to keep you safe all the time. And in one moment, that meant telling you, thou shalt not walk. And in another moment, it meant telling you and showing you. This is the time, this is the moment, now's your chance. This is the way, the prophet says, walk in it. Ooh, that's good, I'm gonna have to write that down. <laughs> Circumstances have changed and the Bible is very plain and very clear about this. This isn't me trying to twist things to make the Bible work, no. The Bible is very, very clear and very plain about this. For instance, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, look, back in the day, y'all had to rely on a priest to stand in the presence of God for you, but you don't have to do that anymore because circumstances have changed. You have seen with your own eyes the great high priest. And so you don't need a priest to stand in your place in God's presence anymore. Circumstances have changed. But you know what hasn't changed? Yes, the Old Testament points us to God, but he will never change. 
He will never change. His purposes for you will never change. His love for you will never change. His character will never change. His intent for your life will never change. The Old Testament points us to God and he will never change. So Jesus is saying, why would I abolish that? Why would I get rid of that? God hasn't changed. Why would I tell you, oh, we don't need that anymore? God hasn't changed. The Old Testament is pointing us toward the one who is immutable. He doesn't change. Well, great. Let's be just a little bit more practical here. Because really the issue is, what about us Christians in the year 2022? Is it necessary for us in 2022, for instance, to tell women that they all need to spend a few days out of every month outside of town while they're unclean? Because the Bible says that's what we're supposed to do. Don't answer that one out loud, by the way. Is it necessary for us as Christians in 2022 to avoid wearing fabric blends in our clothing? Is all the cotton polyester t-shirts, do they have to go because we are people of God? And the Old Testament says don't blend two different kinds of fabric. Is it necessary for us as Christians in the year 2022 to stone adulterers? As the Old Testament says, people ought to do. Is it necessary for us as Christians in 2022 to avoid eating bacon? Because listen, I love Jesus, but that is a (laughs) non-starter. No, I don't think it's necessary. And as a matter of fact, as we read the rest of the ministry of Jesus, he he tells us as much. But we should be recognizing that laws like these helped generations of our spiritual forefathers learn about the holy character of God, a God that they would never see with their own eyes, a God that they would never hear with their own ears. And the very, very specific instructions they were given on how to live set them up for the habits that would help them develop holiness of character that befits the people of God. The laws are good, just like the signpost that told you not to walk was good, even if that's not what it's saying anymore. But you and I, we have seen the one that those laws pointed to. We have heard his words. We've heard the words of the one who fulfilled those commands. That's what we've been doing. We're plagiarizing them right here today. So we don't throw those commands out, but we've learned how to cross the street safely in many circumstances. So we don't necessarily need a signpost at every corner. I remember uh, when I was first learning how to play the piano, learning my scales. Uh, And there's a specific fingering to every scale. You don't just play note, 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 note. You have to use certain fingers in certain orders. And that's one of the difficulties of learning how to play the scales when you're first starting to play the piano. And there's a a rule, um, the pun would be it's the rule of thumb, that you don't put your thumb on a black key. When you're learning how to play the piano, when you're learning how to do your scales, when you're trying to figure out how how to use your fingering, Uh, on the songs you're playing, the first rule you learn is don't use your thumb on a black key. Boy, that sounds like a biblical Old Testament rule, is it? Thou shalt not useth thine thumb upon the enemy. Right? 
And there's a reason for that. The back, black keys are further back, and so your thumb is very short. And in order to put your thumb on a black key, you would have to kind of contrive your hand in a very awkward, weird situation. And then you wouldn't be able to get the rest of the fingers where they needed to go. And if you really need to go from here to there quickly, you've got to be able to do it this way. And so your thumb is reserved for the white keys that are kind of right underneath it and right in front of it. But I can remember that as I learned to play the piano, as I spent years and years in study, by the time I was in college, you know, playing the works of the masters, playing Chopin and playing Debussy and playing Liszt, Rachmaninoff, my thumb was on the black keys all the time. <laughs> because it was, uh, it was necessary in order to get to the chords that I was reading, in order to play the pieces that I... There was been this rule that I had started with that I had learned and the purpose of that rule was to teach me good physical technique with my hands. But when I got to the point where I knew how to use my hands, the purpose of that rule was no longer relevant for the music I was playing. And so there were times when the music would say right there, put your thumb on this. Because it's the only way you're going to be able to get this chord. But now I knew how to do it the right way. Circumstances have changed. Let's put a button on all of this. Here's how Jesus concludes his teaching. Verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can I say this? That's a pretty high bar. Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Unless you are even more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were a sect of Jews that made it their business to analyze the minutia of the Old Testament law. And if in all of their conversations and their debates about how a certain law ought to be obeyed or observed, they weren't able to come to a consensus of what precisely that law meant, they would then just add some more laws to it. They would just, you know, the, the Old Testament said, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, they would sit around and say, well, what exactly constitutes work? If I walk, if I walk a mile, does that work? Well, if I walk half a mile, does that work? If I walk a quarter of a mile, does that work? And they would sit around and debate, and they say, we don't want to be guilty of breaking one of God's laws, but we recognize you do have to be able to get up and walk from here to there, so how far precisely are we able to go? And they would come up with a law that, that actually got down into how many steps. It's like they didn't even have Apple Watches or pedometers, but they were into this kind of stuff back then. Like, how many steps are we allowed to go on the Sabbath? So they would add laws to it. I mean, they were that precise about the minutia of the law. And then once they figured it out, boy, did they follow it. Boy, did they follow it. And then, of course, the teachers of the law who knew by memory even the tiniest detail of every little bit of the law. They knew it backwards and forwards. And Jesus is saying that if it's your intention, if it's your plan to get into heaven based on your ability to keep the letter of the law, you'd better be doing a better job than those guys. <laughs> and, of course, that's just not going to happen. Because... Before we got lost in all of this talk today about the law and are we supposed to do this and are we supposed to do that and do we still have to read this and is this important? Before we got lost in the weeds on this entire conversation today, we need to remind ourselves that the law can't save us from our sins. That's not why it was there in the first place. The Old Testament, what does it do? It points us to God. And he will never change, but it's his grace that saves us. 
It's his grace that saves us. Jesus isn't presenting this idea of salvation by grace as a brand new revolutionary idea. He's just reminding the people of God what the scripture has always said. The Old Testament never told the Jews that they had to be perfect in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. They had just kind of made that their focus. But God's word from the very beginning of scripture had always spoken about God's grace. God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. It's always been about grace. And Jesus was just taking this opportunity to remind them of that. In church, I believe he's taking this opportunity to remind us of that. To remind us. It's always been about grace. It's always been about grace. Jesus never said, I will love you this much if you can be this perfect. Anybody excited about that? (laughs) Anybody want to say, thank you, Lord, because I've been trying really hard to do this thing and I am so aware of the many times I have goofed up. And it reminds me of the word that Pastor Garrett gave us in prayer time this morning. Boy, it's okay to feel weak. But if you're feeling condemnation and guilt, if there's a voice that says in your head, God can't take you this way, that voice is not from him. You know why? Because it's always been about grace. We look into the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, and it's not by your works, so nobody can boast. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says, for what the law was powerless to do. Do we hear that? It was never the purpose of the law to get you into heaven. God doesn't doesn't make mistakes. He gave us the law, but he acknowledges, look, this this, this law that I gave you was never going to get you into heaven. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. It's always been about grace. And so we go back to the Old Testament. We go back to the Old Testament, which as we said, from beginning to end, reveals to us the character of God. It points us to God. And the story of the Old Testament really gets rolling. In his very first book, the book of Genesis, In chapter 12, when God speaks to a man named Abram, he'll later rename him Abraham, but he speaks to a man named Abram, and God says to Abram, essentially this, I'm going to paraphrase, this is the revised Martinson version, but this is essentially what God says to Abram. God says, Abram, I've chosen you. And it's not because you are special or unique in any way. In fact, it has literally nothing to do with you or your ability or your worthiness. Abram, it's not about you. It's about what I want to do in you and what I want to do through you. And it gets very specific with Abram. He says, Abram, the world around you is dying but I'm going to save you from that. And then I'm going to use you to proclaim my salvation to others. That's a pretty good story, isn't it? 
I think God hasn't changed. And I think God is telling the same story today that he told to Abram all those thousands of years ago. Would you listen to him for a moment? Would you hear him call your name instead of Abram's? Would you hear him use your name and say, hey, Wendy, I'm calling you. Ash, I'm calling you. Would you hear him say, I have chosen you. And before you get nervous about this, Bob, it's not because you were special or you were unique. It has nothing to do with your ability or your worthiness. It's not about you. It's about what I want to do in you. And it's about what I want to do through you. And then listen to what he says again. And tell me this isn't relevant in 2022. He has your attention, doesn't he? And then he says to you, the world around you is dying. The world around you is dying. But I'm going to save you. And then I'm going to use you to proclaim my salvation to others. I think that's what God is speaking to us today. I think he's calling each and every one of you by name, by first name. I think there's a moment even right now where he's, he's unveiling some things that you have been going through in the past weeks and months, for some maybe even years. And he's saying, you couldn't hear me then Boy, are you hearing me now. I have chosen you. And the world around you is dying. But I'm going to save you. And just in that moment where you go, okay, that's cool. He says, no, 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 no. I wasn't done yet. (laughs) He says, I'm going to save you. And then I'm going to use you to proclaim my salvation to others. That is what he said to Abram. Genesis chapter 12. God doesn't change. Would you pray with me? Father, unchanging God, immutable God, who has been revealed to us in Holy Scripture. In the beginning, God, period, full stop. You have not changed since that first primeval instant. Are you a man that you should change your mind? No. You have not changed. And I thank you, Lord, that as we read through your Holy Scripture, what you have said remains unchanging as your character. The word of the Lord is powerful and active. 
And we don't live based on our ability to navigate the needs of our own lives. We live on every word of God, every word that proceeds from his mouth. And so my prayer for my friends, my brothers and my sisters today, is that you would speak into our lives sustaining words, Lord, that you would teach us to rely upon your word, that we would be strengthened by your word, that we would be shaped by your word. As much, God, as you do not change, Lord, we need to change. We need to grow. We need to be transformed. And it is by the power of the word of God that we are changed. Speak your word in this place, we pray. We thank you, Lord, as as the psalmist almost comically wrote, your word is such a delight to us. We, We just literally can't even stop thinking about it. Burn that reality into our bellies, we ask. And God, we thank you today for your grace. We thank you today for your grace because where we are weak, you are strong. And your strength is for us and not against us. And Lord, where we have fallen short, God, it is your strength in which we are raised up. And we receive that today. For those in this room that are weary, for those in this room that feel beat down by the pressures and the obstacles they face in life, God, would you restore us by your word today? Would you strengthen us by your word today? Would you renew us by your unchanging word today? We receive your grace in this place. We give you all the glory and all the honor in the name of our Savior Jesus. And everybody says, Amen. 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 Church, rejoice one with another before you leave. May God's blessing be upon you. Greet somebody today, and we'll see you next Sunday.